read from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his livestock? (coughs) Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of their town and made their way towards him. This week I found myself again, must be that age, Going down memory lane, here are some pictures on the screen of uh, famous thirst-quenching adverts through the ages. 1970s, Coca-Cola said it's the real thing. They're not talking about water, right? They're talking about their own product. It's the real thing. That's the 1970s. Um, 1980s, bottom left-hand corner. Anyone remember that? 
drinking in the sun, Sunkist is the one, I remember that advert fondly. Um, Evian, well, the French are always there or thereabouts, at least in rugby, um, that's yesterday's joke. Um, and so they're front and center, but also in the year 2000, there was a 37 grams of sugar per 330 mil of tango. Do you remember that orange man with a bold head that would run up to people and kind of slap them around the face with, with orange gloves? It was a spate of kind of uh, dangerous occurrences. Top left-hand corner. You can look it up on YouTube where you can find the source of all good and some evil as well. This chapter is not about thirst quenching. Ten times John uses the word proskuneo, which is a fancy Greek word that means worship. Ten times in the first 30 sentences of John chapter 4, John wants to say, what are you worshipping? Who are you worshipping? Who has the uh, control of your heart? Where do your affections naturally run to? It's not about physical thirst like those images on the screen. John says Jesus and Jesus Christ alone can quench the thirst of your heart, your deepest needs, your longings, your affections. Verse 10 of John chapter 4. If you knew the gift of God and the one who asks you for a drink, if you knew that, to know in the Bible means to understand. So John is saying if you really understood Speaking to a lady who we'll meet shortly, if you really understood, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you and what I offered you, then you would ask for this gift of God. You need to understand the gift of God. And we're going to do that in four points. First of all, the gift that Jesus offers is a surprise, is a surprise. Look at John chapter 4, please, verses 3 to 6. Jesus is on a road trip. Jesus was on a road trip to use modern language. He wasn't in a car, but verse 3 to 6, Jesus is traveling northward. It's there on the map, that main red line. Jesus is traveling from uh, Jerusalem, and he's traveling north. He wants to get to Galilee, but to get to Galilee, he needs to go through a land called Samaria. And there he, he meets someone. But the one he meets, verse 9, verse 27, top and, and tailing the passage, the one he meets and spends time with, there's a shock. And so verse 9, how can you ask me for a drink, says the lady. Verse 27 says the disciples were very surprised. They're surprised. And the question is, why the surprise? Why, why is the lady surprised that Jesus is talking to her? Why are the disciples surprised that Jesus spoke to the woman? Now, this is a re relatively familiar passage, so I'll be kind of quick on this point. But why is everybody shocked? Why is everybody surprised because of who the lady is? That's the shock. That's the surprise. Jesus is reaching out across every social, cultural, religious line that there is in society. Jesus breaks all the boundaries. He crosses every line because he has a deep heart to meet with this woman in her need. First of all, number one, she's a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jewish did not meet together. They wouldn't shake hands. They wouldn't trade together. They wouldn't worship together. They were absolute enemies. The, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans because of something that happened in history past where the Samaritans built a rival center of worship on Mount Gerizim. 
That comes up later in the account where, where the lady puts up a bit of a smoke machine to say, you're getting too close to me, Jesus. Let's talk about worship. Get away from my heart. Let's talk about something different. You're a prophet and so on. But to because of what they did in history past, the Jews looked down on the ra racial and religious inferior people from their position of height and uh, altitude. And they said, the Jewish said of the Samaritans, we are better than you, you are worse than us, and so on. Because of a center of worship on Mount Gerizim. We are the true worshipers because we're God's people. and We worship in Jerusalem where God told us to worship, but you worship in an inferior place called Mount Gerizim. And so on. So verse 9, it says, John 4, 9, the Jews and the Samaritans did not associate. And that's why. Because of the rival position that they had of worship. They were religious and uh, racially inferior from Jewish eyes. Secondly, she's a woman. She's not just a Samaritan. She's a woman. And women in the first century were the lowest of society. Men and women were... Men had a higher position, a higher cultural value. Women's testimony wouldn't be trusted. And so Jesus is crossing all the boundaries here. It doesn't matter if you were a Roman or a Greek woman, a Jewish or a Samaritan woman. You were of lower social standing in that time than men were. Verse 6, now we're getting to the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. Verse 6, it's not just that she was a Samaritan, not just that she was a woman. Jesus tells us, that he's thirsty. He's thirsty from his travel, so he sits down by the well, and it's the sixth hour. It's, it's the midday sun. Verse 7 tells us that the woman that he's speaking to, well, she comes alone. Now, why does she come? Because you couldn't turn on your tap to get water. The water was uh, just used for everyday life. It was used for cooking, cleaning, uh, baking, washing, thirst quenching the lot. So you couldn't turn on your tap. Now, that pleases every teenage boy that needs to be plunged beneath the necessary washing ritual of a wash or a shower or a bath, right? As a mother touches her son's cheek. I won't say who that is. But for everything that you needed for life, you needed to do the hard work of going to your local well, to your local water source, and drawing out the water. And men were too proud, and women were too hardworking for this to be ignored. So it was the job of women at that time to go and do the hard, back-breaking work of plunging down your uh, contraption into a deep well and getting the water of life. It was hard work, but if you couldn't uh, get it, then you couldn't cook, you couldn't clean, you couldn't bathe, and so on. And it was so hard work that women would do it together. It was a communal activity, and they would come at the start of the day, they'd come out in the evening, two cooler parts of the day. So what is it, if you're unfamiliar with this story, that meant that the lady that Jesus is speaking to very tenderly came at the hottest point of the day. I'm not going to go when it's cool. I'm not going to go when it's easy. Shorthand for, I'm not going to go where I'm going to see other people. I'm going to go where I can be all alone. I'll go in the middle of the day. Now, what's she doing? Verse 17 and verse 18 tells us she's a moral outcast. She's had five husbands. And now she's shacked up with another gentleman as well. She's into serial marriage. You know, and beyond that, she's living with a man who's not her husband. So she's breaking social, cultural, and religious codes, whether she's a Jewish woman or she's a Samaritan woman. It's totally unacceptable in the religious uh, standards of the day how she's behaving. So she's a social, cultural, moral, 
religious outcomes. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He's a man, she's a woman. He was a teacher of God, rabbi. He was a man who knew the righteousness of the law, and yet Jesus breaks the barriers because he's saying in his posture, in his demeanor, and in his actions, let's get to know each other. I know what you've done, but let's get to know each other. My heart, my affection is not against you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to confront you with what you've done in your life, but I'm here to speak with compassion and tenderness. Let's get to know each other. Now, you look at the religions of the world. You look at how society works. And religion works like this. Good people, moral people, respectable people, those are the ones who will come to God, and those are the ones with religious credit and religious standing. That's what religion will tell you. There's no surprise. People who purify themselves, people who give enough, who go to the right places, people who behave in a respectable way, God has to give them credit for their actions. And then you look at this woman. There's no spiritual searching. There's no praying. There's no crying out to God. And yet Jesus says, here's your greatest need. You're desperately and deadly thirsty. You're so thirsty. And think about the woman. She's going through the motions of her day, the backbreaking work, the hard work. She's nervous that she'll look anybody in the eye from the town where everybody knows her name and how she's behaved and what she's done. She's just working along the main purpose of her day. She expects is to do the hard work in the noonday sun of fetching the water. That was the main purpose of her heart. And yet she's confronted with her past and she meets someone who will change her life and will revolutionize her existence. Now, how could this be where everything in her life means that she's on a huge demerit with God? Because God is a God of grace. And he wants to surprise her. She wants to surprise, he wants to surprise her with her need, but also with his sufficiency. And so quickly, as we finish the first point, it does not matter what you've done as you Approach the Lord. It doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't matter on what condition you come this morning. God's grace is very, very surprising. It's a gift. It says that in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Anybody can meet with Jesus. Or it's better to say Jesus is prepared to meet with anybody. Here's the second thing. God is a God of grace, but also God promises with this gift, that's a surprise. He promises that his gift and his gift alone, verse 10, brings ultimate satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction. Verse 10, I'm here to give you living water. I'm here to give you living water. Now, I'm sorry, I know it's half term, but uh, young people, let's go back to science. Let's go back to biology. Do you know up to 60% of the human body is made of water? Up to 60% in the adult person is uh, made up of water. Now, this is what happens if you run out of food. If you run out of food, you get really hungry. Ask any student. When the pasta runs out, you're starving because that's all you know how to cook, speaking from experience. In my time, it was Frey Bentos pies. They had no meat in them, which is why I'm partly vegetarian. You'd open them up, you slam them in, and they were up for under a pound, and that was in those days, let alone now. Now, if you don't have any food, that's one thing. You get really hungry. If you don't have any water, you will die. You will die. Your, your, your body begins to shut down. 
Your organs begin to cry out for sustenance and for water. Your tongue swells up and you can't swallow. Your throat becomes on fire. You have this burning sensation. Anyone want a tea and coffee now? That's how your body behaves. When you're that thirsty because you've forgotten to pack your water bottle and you're doing exercise, you're going out for a walk on a lovely spring day, and Jesus has the audacity to say, I know what you're looking for, and I have something that your soul needs. Every bit as much, if not more than, water that your body needs. If you put the bucket of your soul into any other cause more than my cause, if you put your bucket of your soul down to any relationship other than the relationship that I offer, if you look for any source of beauty other than the beauty that I embody, you're going to die of thirst because it will not quench the deep longings of your heart. But verse 14, notice, the water I give you will not just make you feel better, it will become a spring welling up into eternal life. Now what spiritual thirst? Jesus is not talking physically, but he's going physical to make a spiritual point. He says all of us thirst for purpose, right? You can't just have a job. The job needs and shows us the purpose that we long for. If you're not living for Jesus, what's your purpose going to be? You might be living for your family. My family gives me purpose. My job, that gives me purpose. It might be a cause that you're passionate about. I have a job that just pays the bills, but it's the cause that I'm passionate about. It's where I spend my time. But what happens when the political cause or your family goes down the drain? When relationships break up and pain and heartbreak is what you experience. What happens when you bank everything on a person or a cause or a job and then it fails to deliver what you expect it to deliver? All our earthly hopes, says Jesus, are very fragile and they will let us down. They're unstable. And so where will we get the longing? Where will we have our thirst for beauty and purpose and hope and joy truly met? Because some person, whoever it may be, your loved one, your son or daughter, they're mortal and they're also sinful and therefore selfish. And so Jesus is saying, if you bank your hopes, if you put down the bucket of your soul in into a relationship or a job or a purpose or a cause, ultimately that cannot and will never satisfy. And so Jesus says, I'm giving you a purpose. Eternal life, the gift that I offer, the water that I offer is living water, and there's a wellspring of eternal life that you can never snuff out or quench, even with your sin. Eternal life, a source of purpose and love and peace and hope and joy and satisfaction that will permanently satisfy your thirst. Verse 14, my living water will become a spring within you, welling up to eternal life. Eternal, says Jesus. You can't stop it. You can't quench it. That's what I offer you. It's a surprise. It's a gift of grace that offers ultimate, permanent, eternal satisfaction of your heart. But you need to understand something, says Jesus. Point number three, the gift. The gift comes in stages. 
There's stages to the gift that I offer. Look how gently Jesus speaks to the lady in verse 8 and 9 and 10. Jesus is drawing this needy lady slowly and gradually and lovingly and carefully. She's completely spiritually indifferent. She's not searching or looking for spiritual reality, but, but bit by bit, sentence by sentence, Jesus is embodying love and affection and compassion and trustworthiness that this lady has looked for in all the wrong places. Look, look at the stages that we can see from John's account of this, this lovely interaction with Jesus and this lady. First of all, do you notice how Jesus gets the lady alone? Alone. He'd never have this conversation with her if she came in the morning or the evening. There'd be other people there. He couldn't be able to speak into her heart. She'd be distracted. What about if those people look upon me? What if they see me? And what if they see me talking to a man? And a Jewish man at that. So Jesus speaks tenderly into her heart. And her bad decisions in her life have brought her to this point. And Jesus seizes the opportunity to speak into her need that her brokenness and sinful disobedience has caused. Isn't it true? That very often when life is going well, we don't give Jesus or the great questions of life a thought. We rely upon ourselves and our self-importance and our self-sufficiency. We're too busy. There's too much money in the bank. What do I need Jesus for? What do I need to think about the claims of Christianity for? But when you make mistakes, when you experience sadness and brokenness and disappointment, you get thirsty, don't you? Is this all there is? What am I here for? When can I retire and is golf all I can play? Gets you thinking, doesn't it? When life hurts, when your heart's been broken, and when sadness is a ready experience of your life. Jesus speaks to the lady right into her heart, and he seizes the opportunity that ultimately her sin has afforded her. Look at the second thing. He speaks to her personally. And he speaks to her intellectually. Verse 15. She's come as far as she can come. But Jesus keeps saying, living water, living water. You keep talking about living water. I want running water. Thank you very much. I've come here as the main priority of my day to get uh, water to drink, water to cook with, water to wash with and cleanse myself with. You keep talking about spiritual thirst. That's not my problem. Physical thirst is my problem, she says. And then Jesus says, verse 16, go get your husband. Go get your husband. Hang on, I came here to put my, uh, get my water container full. Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband, verse 17. No, you've been uh, looking to have the deep longings of your heart met in men for years. Men have been running and ruining your life for years. Not just one man, it's been men. I don't want you to think just physically. I want you to think spiritually, says Jesus, verse 16. Go and get your husband. I'm not talking to you about physical water. Your deep thirst for closure, for acceptance, for significance. You've been looking in all the wrong places. You're deeply thirsty, but you've been drinking from the fountain of male relationships, of sex, of approval. 
you may be new to Christian things and some of you might be thinking, hang on, it'd be great if I had the faith to believe in Jesus as my friend has, who's brought me this morning. If only I had your faith, your trust. Let me say that you do, but you've placed your faith, your saving faith in a different source. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to create saving faith. All you have to do is to transfer the source of your faith from relationships, from work, from significance, from self. And all that your hope is placed upon that and you need to transfer that to the only source of salvation who is Jesus Christ. Go get your husband. You've been placing all the weight of your significance, all your hope for stability, all your hope for beauty and acceptance on men. And men have let you down and they've let you down badly. You're looking somewhere, you're drinking deeply for that spiritual purpose of satisfaction and you've been looking in the wrong place. All of us want spiritually deep satisfaction and love and acceptance. In her case, it was men, but it's not only men, it can be so many other things. And let's not pick on women. It could be your career. It could be appearance. It could be acceptance by friends. Who knows? It could be money. It could be wealth. It could be women. It could be status. It could be control of your life. It could be so many sources that you're placing the bucket of your heart deep down into. And it will never satisfy you. And here's a worked example. You're never going to find this living water unless you see where you're drinking from now and you transfer the source of saving faith to Jesus Christ. Go get your husband. Go get your husband. Spiritually thirsty. I'm not spiritually thirsty. Oh, yeah? Go get. Jesus is saying to all of us, go and get. may not be a husband. Go and get your paycheck. Go and get your mirror. Go and get whatever it is that you're banking all your hopes on. There's somewhere, there's something there's someone that you are deeply invested in. And if it's not Jesus Christ, what is it? What is it that you're placing your hope, the bucket of your soul down in there instead of the wellspring that is eternal life? And then Jesus says the thirdly, as he draws the lady, verse 26, after this interaction and the smoke screen that she puts up, Jesus says, yeah, we can talk about worship. We can talk about worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. But I am he. I'm the one that you're looking for. See how he's brought her along tenderly, carefully, graciously. And he has to do exactly the same thing with me and with you as well. He has to get you alone. He has to engage you intellectually and personally. He has to show you where your hopes are and where your dreams are founded. He has to show you that they're not enough, that they're never truly satisfied. Then he has to show you the source of living water that's Jesus himself. And until you've gone through all of that, you've not had the gift of eternal life. Now, how is that possible? Quickly, number four, before we go to the table. How can this gift of eternal life, this living water, how can it be for anybody? God invented you. God made you. That's John chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 14. You owe him life. But since you were born, you've been living life as if your life and your authority is under your control. You're an autonomous self. You don't want to give God a second thought. You don't want to give him the renown that is his due. And the Bible says that's, that's, that rebelliousness, that rebellious heart is called sin. I'm in charge. No to your rules. 
And sin needs paying for. It needs payment. Rules have been broken. Standards have not been met. God's standards. In verses 15 to 18, Jesus has exposed what's on her heart, on this lady's heart, how it's been working. And then there's some, some misdirection going on. This is too painful. This is too personal. I can't, I can't take your gaze anymore, Jesus. And so she's trying to change the subject. And I don't blame her, to be honest. Imagine Jesus putting his finger right on your heart, right on that wound. And so what does she say? Well, verse 19, I'm going to do my best to get out of this loving gaze. Verse 19, I see you're a prophet. Let me ask you a question. I just need a breather. This session is too difficult for me. I'd love to have your opinion on the subject. Worship. Can we talk about worship? Can we not talk about me? Let's talk about worship. Where should we worship? Should it be Mount Gerizim in that temple? Should it be at Jerusalem in the temple of the Jews? And verse 21 says this. Jesus answers, the time is coming and has now come. Actually, it says the hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming and is now here. And as we've seen before, the word hour is so significant in John's gospel. Look in John chapter 2, 3, 5, 12. 16 and 17 and you see the word hour mentioned again and again and whenever it's used it's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross of Jesus for this living water to satisfy the human heart sin needs to be paid for the temple will be destroyed that's the second half of John chapter 2 but Jesus says you can tear down this temple because I am the living temple I am the new temple and I, by my spirit, will make all things new. I will deal with creation that's been subject to decay since the fall. And I'm going to make all things new. And I'm going to make a living temple. I'm going to be the cornerstone. And my church will be the demonstration of my glory on the earth. But sin must be paid for. I'm the temple. But I'm also the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how is that possible? How can Jesus be both the temple and can, how can he be the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? And how, with those two things put together, can he quench the longing of the human heart? That deep thirst, how will he produce the fountain of living water? Well, the answer is by he himself becoming very, very thirsty. Verse 7, the story with the lady begins, this historical account. Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a drink? And at the end of John's gospel, we see Jesus being thirsty again on the cross at his hour. I thirst, says Jesus Christ, as he hangs on the cross. And it's real thirst as the judgment of God, the cup of God's wrath is poured out. And Jesus, using uh, metaphors from the Old Testament, says, I'll drink it to its very dregs. And in Psalm 22, the words of dereliction, the words that Jesus says from the cross Oh, my God, my God, why have you turned your back? Why have you forsaken me? But if you go back to Psalm 22 that's on the screen here, Jesus is literally steeped and soaked in the Old Testament. And so on the cross, Jesus is experiencing a cosmic thirst. He says, I'm poured out like water, my strength is dried up, and my tongue clings or cleaves to the roof of my mouth and you lay me out in the dust of death. 
on the cross, Jesus died of thirst as he experienced his father turning away. The only time in all of eternity that Jesus ever experienced this. He had the ultimate spiritual thirst. He died in torment. He died broken. He died poured out so that we could have the core water of the favor of God. He was parched. His body was broken. He drunk to the dregs the wrath of God, the settled, measured anger of God for all that's wrong in the world. So that the hour has come, says John's gospel, that you can be part of the temple everywhere and anywhere by his spirit. Look, look, how do you know if you've received the living water? How do you know if you've had your thirst quenched? Well, look at the lady at the end of this account. Look what happens to the woman. Jesus now means everything to her. It's a beautiful picture of repentance, of turning from your own self-reliance and shame and guilt and trusting in Jesus for the first time. Look at verse 29. Does Jesus say to her, Come see, or rather, does she say of Jesus, does she say of Jesus, come, come and see a moral code that's changed my life? No, she says, verse 29, come and look at him. Come and look at the one who's loved me. Here's the second thing. Not just come and see the one who loves me. Verse 29, here's the key for real repentance. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, I've looked at this passage quite a few times. I've never really felt the weight of this sentence before. Here's the key, I think, to know if you've received and drunk living water. She's happy about saying to the town who knew her backstory, whose eyes she never wanted to meet, come and see a man who's told me everything that you already know and more. And that's a good thing because I know his heart for me. <laughs> this wouldn't have been a pleasant experience, would it? I know you've had five husbands and you're living with someone else. She could have experienced deep shame and guilt. She could have run for the hills. She could have said, I need to pack up my belongings and just go. How do you know that you're a Christian this morning? This is one of the key signs. Christians know that repentance, turning from self-reliance, apologizing, saying sorry to God for your sin, and turning afresh and believing the gospel, no condemnation living that we thought about last week. Repentance is the only way to break the chains of false saviors in our hearts. False masters, whether it be living for men, living for relation or satisfaction. She goes to the people that she's been avoiding. And how on earth can she look them in the eye and say, you've got to come and meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. You've got to meet him. And I love him. And he loves me. She doesn't care about what people think about her anymore. Because she's got a new identity. A new self-image. A new heart affection. Think of all the ways that they've twitched their curtains and looked down upon her in shame. She's felt those twitching of curtains and those conversations behind hands. And people have walked over the street. You know what it's like and, and posted rude messages in WhatsApp groups about you. Jesus doesn't tell her to do this. She does it willingly. She says, come and see the man who told me everything I've ever done. You've got to meet him. Oh, and by the way, verse 28, she also was so urgent to do it. What did she do? 
Verse 28, she left her water container behind. The very thing that she went for. No, 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 you can just wait. I've got to go and tell the people that have looked down upon me how great Jesus is. She puts Jesus first. Look, if you're here this morning and you think, you don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know how badly I've messed up. You don't know how disobedient I've been. Look at Nicodemus, who we met last week. He had it all together. Mr. Bible, Mr. PhD in Bible. Jesus cuts across his self-reliance. He deals with his pride by, as it were, hitting him with a two-by-four of truth. And he just says, you must be born again. Enough of your words. This is your greatest need. Because your problem is your religious pride. You're an accomplished religious man. And Jesus breaks through that self-reliance. And now we've got someone who's completely different. Someone who knows that she's immoral. Someone who knows that she's broken and needy. And look how gentle Jesus is. Look how he brings her along. She's an absolute mess on the surface compared with Nicodemus. But Jesus revolutionizes her life. He's got so much love in his spirit for her. And now she's received by faith in Jesus a new identity, a new hope, and a new future. Why would Nicodemus get it so much slower than the lady? Or why would the lady get it so much quicker than Nicodemus? Because in general, look at history. God works most powerfully in the people who are most powerless. God loves to show forth his power in the lives of messed up people like me and like you, the little people, the people who seem to make foolish decisions. God loves people like that, and they're so big to God. Don't tell me you're too messed up. Don't tell me you're too broken. Don't tell me that you're a lost case or a lost cause. If that's you and your thinking, you still don't know the gift that Jesus offers. Whoever drinks of the water I shall give will never thirst. Indeed, the living water will become a spring in you, says Jesus, welling up to eternal life. Have you received a gift? Let's pray.